Hi everyone, my name is Haley and this is Straight Talk with the Doc, a podcast that discusses addiction, mental health, and treatment. Today I'm here with our medical director, Dr. Bott. How are you doing today? Doing well, Haley. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. So, Dr. Bott, not only has your work focused on substance abuse treatment, but a huge part of that has also been dual diagnosis and psychiatry, because the two really go hand in hand, correct? Definitely. Um, many people, if not most, that we see that suffer with addiction, substance use disorders, often do have underlying or primary mental health conditions. So yeah, definitely. We see that very, very often. So I'm sure you've seen your share fair of cases of people struggling with very severe mental health disorders and who sometimes may not be capable of making the best decisions for themselves. That brings us to our topic today of involuntary commitment, also called civil commitment. There are a lot of rules surrounding this subject to protect a person's autonomy, but most people probably don't know all those guidelines. That's where I want your help to explain it to me and our listeners. So what does that mean? What is involuntary commitment? So, you know, a lot of times uh, we see patients in the clinical setting that um, unfortunately, due to some underlying mental health condition, are unable to take care of themselves or could be dangerous to themselves or other persons. And due to their mental illness without treatment can suffer from further deterioration or unfortunately neglect or self-harm or harm to others. And um, that's when due to their inability to actually think rationally, make decisions that um, somebody who uh, has the capacity to do so, um, a professional law enforcement or the courts often have to intervene and have those people uh, sent to receiving facilities where they can get a proper evaluation to determine, you know, what kind of treatment is needed, if they have the ability to sign in voluntarily or ultimately be further committed for further treatment. And who's making this determination? Is that a judge, a psychiatrist? It really depends on where this person is encountered. So if I had to divide it, you know, we have different types of civil commitments and civil commitments really is just distinguishing um, the act of holding somebody, committing somebody that's not criminal in nature. That's why it's called a civil commitment. These laws exist in most of the states around the country. And we would like to distinguish why somebody might present a certain way, uh, either secondary to mental health disorder or substance abuse. And... uh, Oftentimes, depending on the presentation, they could run into or be faced with uh, law enforcement and uh, different states can uh, have different people involuntary initiate an examination where they are sent to be further examined. So law enforcement can often do it. Judges can often do it. Depending on the state, different professionals, physicians, social workers, psychologists, they often can be the ones initiating these um, examinations. And in your career, how often do you see this? Is this common? It really depends on the setting again. Um, In the public arena, we often do see people who, due to the nature of their mental health illness or substance use disorder, 
often not getting the proper care that they need and filtering down that social ladder, so to speak. And we do see more people who present to emergency rooms or hospitals that, um, yeah, would warrant needing further commitment because they haven't taken care of themselves. So their state of mind is um, further deteriorated. In the private sector, we often don't see this. These are people that often have um, been engaged in treatment, um, have uh, additional monitoring, have tighter follow-ups, and they uh, often are caught early on before um, deteriorating to the level where they become incapacitated, where they can't make those decisions, might become a danger to themselves or others, and are just getting treatment overall. And so, um, yeah, when I was in the hospital base or working more in the public setting, I, I unfortunately saw more people that ended up getting um, civilly committed and um, yeah, less so on the private side. With the criteria in regard to the risk of harming oneself or others, is that criteria always necessary? Can someone still be committed even if they're not determined to be dangerous? You look at most of these laws that exist again through the entire country and states vary to a certain degree, but in general, yeah, we have to see some level of danger. Now that interpretation can be um, difficult to tease out sometimes because it can it, it's a often subjectively determined um, situation. But yeah, there should be some level of safety issue, danger to self or others, or some neglect that could be um, there. So danger could occur just by the virtue that somebody's not treated properly and starts to self-neglect and starts to not take care of their basic minimal needs that it is a dangerous situation to that individual. So really it depends on the context of how it is, but um, yeah, dangerousness is often um, one of the main criteria that has to be there. And um, it has to be um, secondary to a, a mental illness or some substance use uh, illness that's there. So. Um, just by itself, having somebody being dangerous, uh, we have to distinguish that if that dangerousness is coming from some sort of criminality, antisocial behavior versus coming from uh, a mental illness or a substance use disorder. And that would distinguish then the nature of a civil commitment versus um, somebody getting arrested for their behaviors. Okay, that makes sense. So I know it varies for different states, but one of the criteria I came across was that someone be unable to determine for themselves that treatment is necessary. Could you try to give an example of a situation like that? Yeah, for sure. So many times we have certain mental health conditions that um, due to their um, presentations and the symptomatology, they, they can't often uh, determine what's real and what's not. The reality testing is not intact. Psychotic disorders, for example, unfortunately due to the nature of their illness um, often they believe things that aren't real they see things that might not be there they hear things that um, somebody else might not be able to hear and these are treatable conditions and if you're not receiving the proper medication or you're feeling paranoid about the meds that you're, you're being prescribed and then you don't take the medications or you decompensate in any way well sometimes you might not have intact thinking 
of what's good and what's bad, what's right for you and what's not. So often you might not have the capacity to actually make those educated, rational decisions to take care of oneself or determine if care is even needed. So when we see that somebody's in that situation where they can't take care of themselves or make the, they have the capacity, do not have the capacity to make those decisions and their behavior is dangerous and uh, because of that underlying mental health condition not being treated adequately, those that can be criteria uh, involuntarily uh, committing somebody uh, for their own well-being. Can someone be committed because of drug or alcohol use separate from a mental health disorder? That becomes touchy. I, I, I think that um, it's often hard to determine one or the other. So being that there are multiple types of individuals that can initiate an involuntary commitment, obviously a judge, uh, a police officer, licensed healthcare professionals who have that training and knowledge to um, initiate an involuntary examination commitment. Um, these things um, need evidence. You can't just speculate and and involuntary commit people. You need to have um, evidence, uh, you know, through your own examination and through data gathering. So it's important that those things um, are are done and 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 done properly in order to uh, send somebody to get um, involuntarily committed. And um, it is a two stage process, you know. Most, most states, you know, you can initiate um, sending somebody to get evaluated and you have a certain amount of time to make a determination if those people need to be, um, if they need to be further uh, uh, hospitalized and further treated. And when it comes to substance abuse, though, um, they should have separate um, categorization. But um, often due to the, the urgency or the imminent nature of people's presentations, it's often hard to like, tease out if their presentation is coming from a primary mental illness or primary um, intoxication. And I painted that background because then it depends on what law needs to be, um, you know, what law needs to be initiated. Because in certain states, there are separate laws that distinguish involuntary civil commitments for primary mental health conditions and um, those that are uh, secondary presentations to substance use disorders. So you have to ensure that you are uh, civilly committing somebody under the right um, under the right laws and secondary to the right illnesses. We're in Florida, and in Florida we have the Baker Act. Can you kind of walk through what that is? And then also, is there something else for drug and alcohol abuse? Yeah, so the Baker Act is our uh, mental health law that in the state of Florida that uh, speaks exactly to what we're talking about. Um, involuntarily um, committing somebody uh, for treatment to help stabilize them um, due to their underlying mental health condition. And again, there's criteria there. So um, some just general guidelines is that somebody has to have a, a mental health condition and due to their mental health condition is, is uh, presenting as somewhat a danger to themselves or other persons. 
and or that uh, they can't make the proper decision for themselves to to seek help. They've refused uh, voluntarily voluntary help, and uh, because of all of these conditions, um, without certain treatment interventions, they will continue to deteriorate. And and that whole picture should you know that de- definitely portray some level of urgency or imminency that um, that these people are are, are in harm or uh, will cause harm due to that. And, and that's generally the nature of the, the Baker Act. If that um, presentation is, is secondary to substance, uh, substance use, we have uh, another law called the Marchman Act. And it's basically uh, similar in the fact that due to a substance of abuse or an addiction that um, on, at that being left untreated, um, that further uh, harm will occur to them or others. And um, kind of the same set of criteria that I mentioned in general. Um, the lengths of how long you can hold them until you render that decision, um, if they should be discharged, um, if the person can be voluntarily um, admitted to the hospital for treatment, uh, or if they are going to need further legal commitment. Those time frames um, they 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 differ, but in general, um, the premise is the same. And with the Marchman Act, can somebody be sent to rehab involuntarily? Yeah, I think the the goal is for either one of these things is um, it's not punishment. It's an endeavor to get these people treated. And so uh, one thing I want to highlight here is that, you know, this is not a criminal uh, commitment. This is some these are people who, again, they have to uh, have some underlying mental health or, or addictive illness and they need to be um you know, due to lack of treatment, our understanding has to be due to their lack of treatment, having that presentation that's dangerous. And so if it is a substance use disorder, yes, rehabilitation is often um, the target in order for them to get that treatment that they deserve. Um, On on rare occasions, um, certain states can impose assisted outpatient treatment, but um, that's often when people have gone through the process multiple times, have, you know, been inpatient, hospitalized, often um, have other resources available that a judge would uh, would order something like that. But um, yeah, rehab can be um, the ultimate target for somebody with substance use disorder to get their um, involuntary um, court-ordered treatment. So for somebody who is committed, is there like a certain time frame that they are usually held? And also, is there a limit for how long you can hold somebody? If again, we're talking about, um, you know, the state of Florida, you know, with, with the Baker Act in terms of the mental health situation, the first step is you're going to have an involuntary examination. So if somebody determines that due to their mental health condition, um, like I said, a judge, police officer, a physician, um, social worker involuntarily enacts that um, paperwork and um, these people have to be transported by law enforcement we can't just put somebody in a car privately and take them to the hospital that's uh, that's against the law so law enforcement will take them to a Baker Act receiving facility and they have up until 72 hours at that Baker Act receiving facility to make a determination of one of three things either the person signs themselves involuntarily, 
they um, they are discharged or the provider or the person performing the examination determines that the person still needs further treatment. And then there's a, that's a second step process to um, further commit that individual for ongoing treatment. Now for the Marchman Act, um, which uh, over, you know, is the overarching law for substance use disorders, those people um, would be taken to a Marchman Act receiving facility. Often it could be a hospital or a detox or a crisis stabilization unit. Um, and those people have uh, up to five days to make these determinations similarly um, and make such examinations. Um, the difference between the two is that often the, uh, the Marchman Act is initiated by, uh, it could be initiated by family by petitioning to the courts. Uh, but ultimately, a court order has to take place for somebody to, to be sent there. And um, if they end up going to treatment after the examination or the judge determines they can go straight to treatment, then um, they can be held up to about 60 days. But um, if it's not in a locked facility with other stipulations, um, although, yes, it's a court order, uh, these people technically could leave, but there is that added pressure that um, if they do leave, that they could um, be facing um, criminal charges. Um, often you don't see that, but that is the um, implied consequence. Oh, wow. Okay. So I have a question about the Baker Act receiving facility. Are those who are committed, are they held in you know, just a regular hospital or are there special psychiatric hospitals? Yeah, there's a lot of history behind that. Years ago, we had um, a lot of state psychiatric facilities, state hospitals that uh, kind of were the, the end all place for uh, patients who had chronic mental health conditions um, that really couldn't take care of themselves and need specialized treatment. Over the last many decades, we've seen that um, uh, that diminish. There's less state hospital beds, and, and many private hospitals, public hospitals, started developing more uh, psychiatrically focused inpatient facilities. And so we do see a lot of patients now who have, after they are Baker acted and they're determined to need further treatment, but they don't have the capacity to make determinations for themselves or assign it voluntarily, these people are often uh, committed on or in psychiatric uh, or behavioral health inpatient units that could be attached to private hospitals or public hospitals or even freestanding behavioral health hospitals. So um, that's usually where most people end up getting treated, but they still could be sent to a state hospital. And um, depending on the severity again and, and the treatment course, Many people could stay anywhere from a few days to weeks, um, even up to months. But I think the goal is we don't want people in hospitals for long periods of time if that could be avoided. And um, that's where we've seen the changes from people being sent to state hospitals um, to, to shorter term, um, more uh, acute hospital stays. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about this change 
can we talk about, you know, the history of civil commitment? You know, how has it changed and why is that change necessary? The history of civil commitment is there's been recognition of mental illness uh, for, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. We've we've, uh, documented this in, in history, depending on where you look at it and how much of a history buff you are. You know, we, we've seen this even um, in, in ancient Greece and, and Roman times. But, um, you know, w- when we fast forward um, in, in the 18th, 1800s and uh, early 1900s, we see, we saw a lot of patients uh, being treated, as I mentioned before, in, in state hospitals. And um, often it was, you know, due to the fact that somebody identified them having a mental illness. And um, a, a doctor or provider would end up, you know, initiating that commitment. You know, that could be dangerous, though. And, and when I say the word dangerous, it's, it's that as we want to recognize people, uh, humans' rights and human beings' freedoms, you know, we can't just allow somebody's testimony and uh, a doctor's simple opinion without gathering enough evidence and facts to, um, you know, send somebody into a long-term um, commitment where they can't leave. So um, there was a push in, in, let's say, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s um, in the 20th century where uh, it, it was challenged that many people were looking at, are people being sent for commitment and are their vi- rights being violated? Excuse me. So we saw a lot of laws change as a result, you know, and... Um, there were some cases that were highlighted and, and, and due to those cases being highlighted, it, it, people became aware, wait a minute, we can't just send these people and lock them up. And, uh, you know, we need more uh, structured laws uh, regarding that. So we saw a swing. We saw a change where um, we saw people getting uh, less lengthy commitments, uh, reform with the laws. And, uh, you know, as a result, there was less state beds that were, were there. And we, we deinstitutionalized um, as much as possible while trying to maintain as much freedom as possible and autonomy for people. And uh, I think that's where that uh, barometer of the degree of dangerousness um, came into play. You know, unless somebody is showing some level of imminent danger or a reasonable danger that's there because of their untreated mental health condition, um, you know, people have the right to make decisions and be untreated if they wanted. So uh, that's where this this change started to occur. And now most people in the country um, are being treated outside of those systems, either through outpatient treatments or, you know, acute um, hospital setting. Can a person who's been committed be given medications involuntarily, you know, even if they refuse to take it? Yeah, so... I've seen this and I've been the provider when I used to work in inpatient uh, acute psychiatric units. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy to just give somebody a medication. So if a person is presenting in an emergent way while in the hospital where their, there's their behaviors um, are, are so dangerous, there are the provisions where an emergency treatment order may be given. And again, I'm, I'm simplifying it for this conversation, but, you know, we don't want to just inject somebody or give them medications um, against their will unless there's good reason. 
Um, but beyond those emergency situations to, to treat somebody who's been committed, you, you, you need a, you need a court order in most cases. And this is done after a trained physician, psychiatrist, um, gathers evidence, clinical evidence, and often, uh, collateral information, uh, painting the picture of the patient's mental health condition and putting it in context and then submitting this to the court where a court order then is um, generated where um, ongoing medication can be provided. So it's kind of broken up in two, if I can say it like that, you know, emergency situations we can treat, but you can't continue to treat it like that unless um, it's an emergency and for the, the, the long run until somebody's medications render uh, effective um, a court order is necessary. So are there different rules for committing a minor versus an adult? Yeah, minors have different rules. And, and by um, just by the fact that they're minors, you know, um, they, they don't have the ability to make certain decisions for themselves. So, but minors can be um, Baker Acted and Marchman Acted. Um, again, I'm speaking to the laws here in, in Florida, but... Um, in, in other states, there are involuntary commitments that can uh, occur for, for children who meet those same conditions, who are dangerous to themselves or others, or will suffer neglect or can't. And uh, again, the part where they can't make decisions for themselves due just the fact that they're uh, under the age of 18. So, um, but if they were seeking out voluntary or elective mental health treatment that can, can be done, but again, this is in context of, you know, them having a mental illness and them not knowing what's right for them and them being under the age of 18. Yeah, these 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 laws do apply in general. They're 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 similar. And would they need the guardian's permission per se? Yeah, I mean, initially, again, if there's a, a certain level of dangerousness that there's, that's there, um, depending on who's initiating this, um, the initiation of the involuntary examination um, that can be done on the spur of the moment um, by those who are, um, you know, under the law capable of doing so. But yes, we want to involve the guardian and we want to uh, involve the, the caregiver and inform them um, along the way, because uh, in the end of the day, um, you know, somebody can be held um, again under the auspices of, doing right by the person and, and looking out for their well-being. But um, I don't think anybody wants their child to be held without um, their involvement. So, um, yeah, there, there is an obligation um, there to have the guardian, the caregiver, the parent uh, be involved um, when it's appropriate, when the time is right. But, uh, you know, usually the law is stipulating that we want to look out for the best interest of the person in front of us. And, um, you know, if, if they're doing life-saving or emergent measures, that should be the first step. And then informing the people should be after the fact. Because if there's a delay in life-saving or emergent measures, then, you know, you're risking somebody's, uh, somebody's life there. So I think they would hope that uh, the, the life-saving measure order comes first. Mm -hmm. Okay. Dr. Ba, is there anything else on this topic that you think people should know? I know that this is often uh, an unspoken side of the door to treatment. 
and um, often difficult to initiate. I know those who, um, you know, the audience and the, and the people that we're targeting in this, in this podcast and, you know, probably have been in and out of treatment or those who have not might not know that um, this exists. Addiction and mental health conditions uh, are difficult illnesses to, to treat. And oftentimes due to the nature of them, people are not often thinking um, in their right mind. And so um, these laws are there, these, these situations exist in order to exactly um, do that, to help people get into treatment and receive treatment um, where they would not do so for themselves, but also when they put themselves in such a dangerous um, situation as a result of their untreated um, addiction or mental health condition. I would explore if I was a family member, if you've really tried very hard that um, somebody, you know, you're losing them and, and their behaviors are so dangerous that they are um, a, a significant danger to themselves or others due to their substance use or their mental health condition, that they, they look into their local state laws and, and investigate ways to help their, their loved ones um, get the treatment that they need. And um, if it means to do it uh, under an involuntary commitment, um, that they, they, they really entertain it because um, in the end of the day, it could, it, it could ultimately save their life. And um, that's really the take home message here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for explaining that, Dr. Bott. Um, the whole subject is definitely more clear to me, and I hope to our listeners as well. You can catch more episodes on addictioncenter.com, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And we hope to have you again for another episode of Straight Talk with the Doc.